Good morning, everyone. If you would, to turn to uh, Acts 20. We're going to be reading verses 17 through 38 this morning. And now from Miltias, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive now from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you, uh, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of all blood and of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit had made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men, speaking, twisting things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, day or night, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, and to those uh, who were with me, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Maybe seated. Good morning. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study in God's word here this morning. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the blood of your son whose life, death, burial, resurrection make possible this church. Christ is the head of the church which is deemed his body. And within the church, God has placed leaders overseers, uh, shepherds, elders. Father, we thank you for the passage that's before us here in Acts 20. And Father, while it's in large part a missionary church planter speaking to a group of local church leaders, I believe this passage is instructive for us all, both to the congregation as a whole and to the elders who govern each local assembly in Christ. Father, I pray this morning you would open our eyes to see our dependence upon Christ for all things. Move us to consider what church leadership looks like from your word. I pray, Father, you would show us the course that you've set before us and that you would remind us again today of your counsel to hear from you and your good spirit. Pray, Father, you would remind us to value our own relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Sharpen our character this morning. And I pray that we all would resemble Christ in an ever-increasing measure and that your church would fully function as a community of believers looking always only to the King of Kings. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was drawn this past week to an incident that occurred, I believe it was on Friday. It was a cross-country meet. I want to say it was in West Virginia. It wasn't here in the state of Indiana. But I was drawn to the headline. There was a picture attached to it. It was a picture of, of one young lady carrying another young lady on her back. And as I read the article a little bit, I was, I was drawn to see that this one runner from one team 
stops, notices this young lady on another team who is injured. She's in obvious pain. She made the comment that she heard something pop in her knee and she couldn't walk. And so the picture is of this one young lady and another young lady on her back. And she's carrying her like so. And the and lady, young lady on her back is holding on to her knee and she's in obvious pain. It was a picture that was an interesting picture for a couple reasons. You know, it's one thing to help a teammate. This girl, from what I understand, was a complete stranger. She was from another school. This was a conference cross-country meet. And yet she stopped to help. And, and the picture was, was priceless. It's a rarity in athletic competition. But the picture was also a reminder for me of how the Bible describes this God that we serve. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. It says, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Jesus himself shares the story of a lost sheep. You might recall one of those three parables in Luke chapter 15. The first of which, I'd encourage you to let the text paint the picture for you. Jesus says, what man of you having 100 sheep, if he loses one of them, does not go and leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after that one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Can you picture it? He has that sheep. He finds that sheep. And when he finds, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, you see this imagery of a shepherd and his sheep. The shepherd and the flock. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, 35 and 36, it says, Jesus went about in all the cities teaching in the villages, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with what? Compassion. Why? Because it says they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Micah the prophet in chapter 7 verse 14 says, Shepherd the people with your staff, the flock of your heritage. And that great psalm, Psalm 78, verses 52 and 53, the psalmist says, But he, that's God, made his own people go forth like sheep. And he guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they did not fear. At the end of Psalm 78, we see that God is going to choose. He is choosing his own shepherd. He chose David, his servant, and took him from where? The sheep folds. Remember that? From following the ewes that had young, he brought him, that's God brought David, to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded, this is what the psalm says in Psalm 78, David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. See, this imagery of a shepherd and a flock, or shepherd and sheep, is rich throughout the scriptures. And yet I wonder... As I was thinking about this text today, I was wondering how this imagery is perceived by the church today. On one hand, the church is far removed from the normalcy of shepherding, right? Back in the first century, shepherding was common. People could relate to a shepherd and his flock. You didn't have to look far across the countryside to be able to spot a shepherd and his sheep. It was pretty noticeable, pretty obvious in the first century. It was understood by the first century audience. Here we are today in the 21st century. And shepherding in the state of Indiana is not one of your primary vocations. Amen? Not. I don't know of anyone, I've not been introduced to anyone of late who calls themselves a shepherd by vocation. 
Yes, there may be a few elders that I've spoken with who maybe will say something to that nature, something to that degree. Yes, I'm a shepherd. But no one who is actually doing the vocation of shepherding. So how do you respond then to the shepherd flock imagery that is clearly revealed in the scriptures? Is this imagery no longer appropriate for today's fast pace, get what you want, when you want it culture? Is the idea of a shepherd flock imagery antiquated and in need of a more glamorous, a more relevant substitute? Does the shepherd sheep imagery need a branding upgrade? That's a big deal today, isn't it? A brand. Your brand for your company, it's a pretty big deal. How you go about marketing. Do we, do we need a branding update to fit today's high-tech, social media-saturated audience? Well, Paul is in Miletus in the text before us here in chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Miletus, just in terms of map and understanding a little bit of, of, of the distance these elders would have traveled to get to where Paul is in Miletus. Miletus is about 30 miles by air. If they were to take an airplane, which they didn't, 30 miles. On foot, probably more like 60 miles. Because they had to go through a couple mountain ranges. They had to zig and zag to get, finally, to Miletus. So we're talking about a four-day trip on foot. Paul arrives in Miletus and he calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus. Now, for someone who is in such a hurry, he seems compelled by the Lord to call such a meeting. Remember, he's, look at verse 16. It says he decided to sail past Ephesus so he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying, he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem. Why? It's possible to be there for the day of Pentecost. Okay? That's a little bit of the context here. This is a farewell address in many ways. Paul is en route to Jerusalem and desires to get there in time for Pentecost. And there are probably a few good reasons for Paul bypassing Ephesus at this time. But notice he doesn't bypass the church at Ephesus. He calls a meeting with their elders. Now these elders, we need to understand something. These particular elders more than likely were appointed by Paul himself during his three-year stay in Ephesus. These men were also no doubt discipled by Paul during his lengthy stay in the city. And over time, these men became colleagues in the gospel, working with Paul to teach and preach the good news. These men were the men who helped Paul and his co-workers take this gospel into all of Asia, the scripture says. A great deal of time and energy had been poured into these elders at Ephesus. And it's to these men now that Paul turns his attention in verses 18 through 35. If you notice in the text... The bulk of this text is Paul's message to this group of elders. Verses 18 through 35. There's an introductory verse in verse 17. And then there are three concluding verses. 36, 37, 38. They give a conclusion to the message. But the bulk of the text is Paul's message to this group of elders. You know, as a, as a preface to working through this text, you might be wondering how such a passage relates to you. After all, it's the Apostle Paul, and he's speaking to a group of elders. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not an elder. I'm not a church leader. You turn it off. I would advise you not to do that. Okay? Advise you not to do that. You might be correct in saying you're not an elder. But we've got to remember, from a very base foundational standpoint, all Scripture is profitable. Amen? All Scripture is profitable. Wouldn't it be helpful to know what the Lord has to say about those shepherding the flock of God? Wouldn't it be helpful to know who these men are supposed to be? The kind of leadership that's needed among the flock. Just because the bulk of the text is a message from Paul to a group of elders doesn't mean the text is unprofitable for you. If you're here today and you deem yourself to be a part of this flock, then hearing what God has to say about his shepherds in the church ought to matter. It ought to matter. It ought to cause us to sit up 
It ought to cause us to take notice of what the Lord expects of those shepherding the body of Christ. In fact, if you were to turn to 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1, you would find what is oftentimes referred to as those elder qualifications, right? Many of you know the references. You know that's the passage. Those are the two places in particular where we can find those elder qualifications. Some of you might be inclined to skim that text in light of the fact that you're neither an elder nor see yourself being called to eldership anytime soon. But there's a real concern that I have with one who holds to that. If you just take 1 Timothy 3 for just a moment and you start to work through the elder qualification list, he must be blameless, without reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for, for money, gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Tell me, which one of those qualifications? Let's imagine we're talking, let's make it personal. Let's imagine we're talking about one of your sons. Any one of those on that list I just read that you would want to just pull out and say, "Ah, I don't want that for my son. Any of those would be okay to just be absent and gone? Don't have to do with those? While it's true that Paul in that context in Timothy 3, he's writing to Timothy to help him discern who these elders are. It's also true that the list in Timothy 3 serves as qualifications for a godly man. How many of you parents desire to train up a godly man in your home? I do. I desire that. That's my heart's desire. Absolutely. And I hope it's yours too. The text for today is a window into a private meeting with Paul and a group of elders from Ephesus. Took place back in the first century and for a particular reason. Paul knew these men intimately. He had a relationship already established with them and he desired to speak one last time before heading off to Jerusalem. So what is it that he has to say in this farewell address? As a missionary, church planter, Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the will of God, Paul has a heart for the shepherds at Ephesus. These are people who get it. They get it. He's speaking to a group of men who share a similar heartbeat for the things of the Lord. It's a joy to gather together with fellow servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are times when I head into the coffee shop and I come across different pastors, different elders, teachers in other assemblies in the area. And one of the joys for me is being able to talk to them. There's a couple guys in there in particular who are a lot older, a lot lot wiser and smarter than me. And I love to pick their brain. I love to sit across the table from them. I like to ask them, hey, what'd you preach last week? I like to ask them, what are you going through right now? And we have a great dialogue. And we're able to encourage one another mutually in the faith. There's something about sharing this noble task with another brother who is doing the same thing that you are in the trenches. So when we look at the text... And we see in verses 18 through 21, these elders at Ephesus, they show up after their journey. And Paul begins to speak. The first thing I'd like you to see in 18 through 21 is that Paul is going to share personal testimony. He's going to share his character. Paul's character is what we're going to see expressed here. He says in verse 18, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. Paul is recounting his testimony of his time spent in Ephesus. He says, you know. In other words, you've been able to witness my life. You've seen the consistency of what I was about during my time with you. And so the question comes as we look at his character, his personal testimony. How did he live among them? I believe he answers the question. First of all, serving the Lord. Verse 19, serving the Lord. The serving here is a reference to his new nature. The word is doulos. It has in mind a bond servant or a term that we don't typically like to use today, slave. Serving the Lord. He was a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul begins a few of his letters by identifying himself as a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.1, Romans 1.1, Titus 1.1, Galatians 1.10. The identification is significant and helps explain why Paul does the things that he does. It helps us understand what our union with Christ is to look like. 
You see, new creations have new ownership. And new ownership demands a new way of living, fueled by the Holy Spirit. Notice that his service to the Ephesians flowed out of his service to the Lord. It was in serving the Lord that he was able to manifest a Christ-like witness among the elders in Ephesus. He served, the text says, he served the Lord with all humility. Paul served with the mind of Christ. And he modeled the one that he followed. He patterned his own life after the one who humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient to death. Even on a cross. Philippians 2. He served the Lord, according to the text, with tears. Now Paul, as I read Paul in the scriptures, and perhaps this is the way you would read Paul in the scriptures, I don't see Paul as some weepy fellow. Paul's not some, well, with always crying, uh, you know, get some get feelings hurt, he's crying. Wah. That's not Paul. So it says he's tears. What kind of tears are we talking about? I believe that for Paul... Paul wept for his own countrymen. He wept for those who were yet to know Jesus as the Christ. His tears are characteristic of his empathy for others. His desire for others to come to know and experience the joy of knowing Jesus. The text also says he served the Lord through many trials, through tears and trials. And this is what a testimony here. This is instructive for all of us. Paul's life included trials. And no matter how difficult things got, Paul continued to serve the Lord. Even just recently, if you flip to the beginning of Acts 20 and verse 3, we see that he's getting ready to make his trip to Jerusalem. But it says when the Jews plotted against him, he decided to return back through Macedonia. He had to reroute his trip to Jerusalem. And all along the way, Paul has been persecuted by his own countrymen. They've plotted, they've planned to take his life. And in fact, in chapter 14, verse 19, they actually intended to kill him. They had stoned him in Lystra, left him for dead. Paul, by his own testimony, is a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived that way in Ephesus. But listen, he lived that way long before arriving in Ephesus. His life had become a pattern of imitating Jesus. How else did he live among them? Preaching and teaching. Verse 20. Preaching and teaching. Paul didn't keep back anything that was profitable. That's what the text says. He kept back nothing that was helpful. Some of your translations, nothing that was profitable. Paul didn't shy away from proclaiming the truth of the gospel. He proclaimed it to the elders. He taught publicly, and he shared the word from house to house. His ministry, as we see here, and his testimony is all-encompassing. He didn't just sit in the ivory towers of the pulpit and proclaim the message, but he sought out the people, and he spent some time in their homes communicating and explaining the truths of the gospel, reasoning and persuading men in light of the judgment to come. Question we need to keep in mind here as we're going through the text why is Paul sharing his testimony with the elders from Ephesus? Is Paul just wanting to highlight his own, toot his own horn, so to speak? Is he highlighting himself, doing one of these? Is that characteristic of what we know of Paul? No, absolutely not. Why is it he's doing this? Why is he sharing this? I believe he's calling their attention to what ought to be in the life of an elder. He's about to go to Jerusalem. And with the time that the Lord gives him in Miletus, Paul is testifying how he ministered among them as the Lord gave him grace to do so. Public ministry and house-to-house ministry. There's something about that, isn't there? I mean, back in the day, there was such thing as a visitation night. Remember that? You ever heard of that? Visitation night. Where the pastor or the elders, a group of folks from the local church would go and pay visit. To those in their particular flock. I think of the Whitfields and the Spurgeons and McShane, Robert Murray McShane, who spent a good majority of his time in the homes of his people. 
as an elder, this is important for a few reasons. Shepherding the flock is not a Sunday morning responsibility only. Preaching the word from the pulpit is not the extent of the ministry entrusted to our care. We are shepherds who steward the soul. To do that, there's a need to be with the sheep. But house to house also provides an opportunity to encourage each household apart from Sunday. You can learn a lot when you pay a visit to someone's home, can't you? Perhaps when you meet someone apart from Sunday. Maybe you're having a meeting. I know with some of you guys have have had some meetings apart from Sundays. We've met either during lunch or we've met early in the morning for breakfast. And we've just spent some time in the Word. We've spent some time together. House to house also provides an opportunity for the flock to get to know the elders. Hard to do that on Sunday morning alone. Hospitality Sunday is a particular Sunday intended for the flock to fellowship with one another, to share life together, to exalt the name of the Lord together. House to house doesn't just apply to the elder and the flock, but the flock should have a desire to get together with other parts of the flock. House to house is also a time to pray for one another and lift up concerns that perhaps didn't get mentioned on a Sunday morning. House to house helps the elders to know how to pray more specifically for you. We see from verse 21, there's another way that Paul lived among them, and that was by testifying to the Jews. He was evangelizing the lost. Paul had a heart for the lost. Paul's testimony is that he preached and taught those in the flock, but he also ministered to the very ones who opposed him. He sought to preach the word to the Gentiles. His desire was that all would come to know Christ as Lord. And according to the text, he testified to Jews and Greeks on two fronts. Calling them to repentance and faith. You see, Paul had been entrusted with the gospel and his pattern was to call people to repent. To change their course and direction. To change, to see that the Lord changed their heart and that they turned from sin. But it also involved calling people to turn to God this fleeing sin, but also pursuing the Lord. And the Bible says that we pursue the Lord with others who also call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. So what is shared in the meeting is not only characteristic of Paul's life, but it's intended to show these men what it is to be an elder in the local assembly. A heart for the lost is a necessity, not an option. And the under-shepherd must take on the desires of the chief shepherd. And the chief shepherd, as we saw back in that passage in Luke 15, does he not have a heart for the lost? In verses 22 through 27, we go from Paul's character to Paul's course. Paul's course. I want you to know something. That Paul's course, his race, depending on the translation you have, his race or his course... His course changed the day that the Lord got his attention on the way to Damascus. Your course changed as well when the Lord got your attention. The day he got your attention, your course changed. It should have changed. He got Paul's attention, his course was set. You know, his previous course led him to persecute and destroy the church. And now here he is. He's planting churches all over the Mediterranean. And he's appointing elders in every city. And he's discipling the brethren in these churches. And once Ananias, remember Ananias, Acts 9, once he shows up and he lays hands on Paul, Paul's eyes are open and his heart is made new. And the course for Paul had been set, Acts 9, 15 and 16. Paul, the Lord says, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, Kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. His course, even up to this point where we're at in Acts 20, has not been easy. It's been filled with trials, it's been filled with persecutions, beatings, stoning, all for the cause of advancing the gospel to the very end of the earth, Acts 1 8. 
I want you to listen to the course set before him. Look at 22 and 23. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. The chains and tribulations didn't seem to change Paul's course, church. If you were to hear of chains and tribulations awaiting you, might you be inclined to turn and run? How can Paul say that he doesn't count his own life dear? Verse 24. He says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Listen, if, if the course for Paul had been God's plan, then any chains and tribulations that come can be handled by God. What is that? Well, it lines up pretty closely to what I know to be faith. Faith is being fully convinced, according to Romans 4.21, being fully convinced that what God's promised, he is fully able to perform. If God set the course for him, and there's chains and tribulations awaiting him, okay. It wouldn't be something we would choose, but it's God's course. So Paul's going. And in fact, had... Hadn't Paul already seen the hand of God in his life up to this point? Working through various trials. These chains and tribulations, they don't seem to move him because he's set on finishing his course, his race, with joy. If the finish line is yet to come in Jerusalem, then so be it. Paul's desire is to finish his course. He's not turning in his apostolic hat at this point, calling it quits in light of the chains and tribulations that await him. But notice, too, that he's not just concerned about finishing. He desires to finish well. He desires to finish with joy. That's Paul's desire. What an example this would have been to these elders for them to hear what Paul is right now facing. And yet to see Paul's unflinching desire to finish the course set before him and to do so with joy. See, Paul received this ministry from the Lord Jesus. His ministry priority was testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. And entrusted with such a stewardship, Paul is steadfast to please the Lord and to run with perseverance the race set before him. These ideas of enduring, um, persevering, this obligation that Paul had now to run this course. He was running the course in such a way as to get the prize. The finality and the urgency of his message is seen in verses 25 through 27. He references that they will see his face no more. In fact, this is the one thing at the end of the passage that they are holding on to. They sorrowed because they were not going to be able to see him anymore. Paul doesn't see himself coming back to Ephesus anytime soon. This is essentially the end of the line for Paul. His last words. A final call. And you know the possibility of a death sentence has a way of bringing out heart things, doesn't it? Paul testifies he's innocent of the blood of all men. That's not a boastful comment, church. He connects that to his stewardship of the word of God. He says, for I have not shunned or I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Think about this for just a moment. During his stay in Ephesus, Paul's good news message, it rang out throughout the entirety of Asia. And he could now leave with a clear conscience knowing that the whole counsel of God had been proclaimed. He was leaving knowing that everyone there had an opportunity to hear the gospel truth. That's what he's talking about. His course was set. Chains and tribulations were waiting, but his course had already been filled with such chains and tribulations. His life was not counted most dear, but his course was the very thing he held on to. You see, finishing the course with joy was his preoccupation. As a bondservant of Jesus, he was compelled to continue the course given to him by the Lord. And then we get to 28 through 32. In 28 through 32, we see Paul's counsel. Paul's counsel 
And the counsel comes in two basic forms. Take heed to yourselves. Take heed to all the flock. Take heed to watch out. To pay attention to. Usually has attached to it some kind of warning. This particular word is, in the text, it's, a, it's an imperative, which means it's a command. It's also in a tense that helps us understand that what he's calling these elders to is to be a habitual action. This is something that they are to be doing ongoing. As an elder, constant guard is needed. And the council from Paul is also to take heed to all the flock. There's a guarding aspect communicated here to the elders. Guard the flock, be on the alert, watch out for all the flock. The implication here is that the flock is in need of guarding. And he'll give us a couple reasons why that's so here in just a moment. Paul says this flock to which you are to take heed. Notice what it says. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Episcopoi. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers, elders, shepherds. These words are interchangeable oftentimes in the New Testament. And Paul's counsel to the elders at Ephesus is this. Know that the Holy Spirit has placed you in the position of overseeing the flock there in Ephesus. He has placed you as the leaders to shepherd the church of God. So we go back to the question. Is shepherding intended to be merely a first century idea only? Has the Holy Spirit changed the terms for today? He's the one placing them as overseers. As overseers, elders are to shepherd the church of God. Whose church is it? God's. The church of God. It's God's church. So as an overseer, we are given a trust. We are shepherds who steward a trust. And in this case, we are stewards held accountable according to Hebrews 13, 17. We're held accountable for souls. Notice at the end of verse 28, it says that God purchased this church with his own blood. Now that's sort of an odd description. God purchasing the church with his own blood. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like man. The reference here is to God's only son. His own blood is what brings us near to God. Ephesians 2.13. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the fullness of the Godhead. Right? In the flesh, he is the fullness of God. His blood purchased the church. And the extent to which God went in sending his son to live and to die and to lay down his life for his people... Now the significance factor of the elder's task just ratcheted up off the charts. A shepherd is intended to take heed to all the flock. The guarding becomes a necessity on two fronts as Paul continues to counsel. Guarding from those on the outside. Verse 29. Guarding from those within. Verse 30. There's a watching and warning in verse 31. Watch. Warn. Remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. In fact, Paul's ministry in many ways is, is summarized in Colossians 1.28. He says, Him we preach, Christ. Christ we preach. Warning every man <clears throat> and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ, mature in Christ. I want you to listen 
to the warning. There's a warning that's put forth. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3. Turn and look at chapter 3, verse 17. The word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel and says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. All right, do you see what's going on? Ezekiel's standing before the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to speak. I'm going to put words in your mouth. And you take those words and you go and warn the people. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning. Nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked... And he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way. He shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. Listen, there are times when warnings are put forth. Warnings are called for. And we see that this is what Paul is talking about here to this group of elders. I did not cease to warn you night and day with tears. Paul, I believe in many ways, is the Ezekiel of his day. The watchman on the wall. He's getting the gospel out. He's speaking the truth. He's seeing that no man stands before the judge on that final day, having not heard the message of Christ, having not heard to repent and turn to faith in Jesus, to do works befitting repentance. And knowing that he's about to get on board a ship bound for Jerusalem, he commends them to God in verse 32. Look at the text. He says, so now, brethren... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The word of his grace. Which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He commends them to God and to the word of his grace. And you know, back in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, you might recall on that first missionary journey. In Acts 14, verse 23, it says that when Paul and his colleagues, when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, the body of Christ is not Paul's, but the Lord's. He's commending, Paul is commending them all into the Lord's service and care. And the word which he speaks of here in the text is able to build them up. That's presently. The word is able to build them up in the here and now. And the word is also... And God is able, with the Spirit in them, that's what I love about this part here, to give them this inheritance. You remember that, Ephesians 1.13, that inheritance. We're sealed with that inheritance in the Holy Spirit, that yet to come with the other parts of Christ's body. And that's good news here that Paul is presenting to these elders, good news for the present, that this is able to build you up right here and now, but it's also a promise for what is yet to come, this inheritance Having shared a bit of his testimony, his character, and having shared his course, having now exhorted them and counseled them forward to, to, to just in light of his departure, he commends them to God. You know, there's an aspect of an elder that when an elder gets together with another part of the flock and there's counseling that goes on, there's some kind of word that goes forth. I think it's important to not dismiss or belittle the pointing of one to the Lord. That where there are trials and where there are concerns in your life, I think sometimes we, we desire to have a, a, that we have the, the, maybe the prescription mentality of we want a quick fix now. Oftentimes that's not the way it works. But one of the best pieces of counsel that I believe we can give, and I believe it's modeled here, is to commend them to the Lord. To remember that, that you have in Christ the greatest resource available to you in the Holy Spirit.
He is your great shepherd. Well, 33 to 35, he closes, concludes. And this too speaks to Paul's character. I just call it Paul's character part two. It's kind of interesting that he speaks of character up front and he speaks of character at the end. They're bookends. You know, I find it also interesting that he's speaking character issues twice. And I realize that in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1, what is it that makes up the bulk of the elder qualifications? Is it not character? Paul says in verse 33, hey, I've coveted no one's silver. I've coveted no one's gold. I've coveted no one's apparel or clothing. What can we say about this? Maybe looking at it from the other side of the fence. I've lived a life before you of contentment. I've been content with the very things that I have. And he goes on and he talks about in verse 34 and 35. You know, these hands of mine have provided for my necessities. And as he's talking, you can almost picture him just referencing his own hands. These, these hands of mine, they've provided for my own necessities and for those who were with me. So there are two other issues that he puts forward here at the end. One of them is contentment. The other one is hard work. Hard work. It's modeled by Paul. And we need to remember, once again, Paul's audience. He's speaking to a group of elders. Paul's character testimony is not given to boast on himself, but it's rather to serve as an example to these men who are shepherding the flock in Ephesus. And Paul is pointing them to support the weak. It's interesting here that the one who is weak, he's without strength. He's unable to provide for himself. And Paul worked hard to see that even his own colleagues were provided for. Remember, he was a tent maker. And so he would work with his hands and provide for his own necessities and for his colleagues who worked alongside of him. And he ends his message. I want you to note how he ends his message to them. He ends his message by pointing not to himself. He ends his message by pointing to the one that they are to follow in the days ahead. Jesus. Remember, guys, he says, remember the words of Jesus, the one that you serve. It is more blessed to give than to receive. There's this concluding remark, not only with the words of Jesus, but this reminder of who we are as a shepherd, as an elder. We are, first and foremost, a servant leader. It's the John 13, take up the towel. And you remember those words of Jesus. As I have done this and given you an example, so you go and do likewise. Servanthood, empathy, battle-tested, preacher and teacher of the word, evangelist, steadfast in his course to finish with joy, knowing that the Lord Jesus had commissioned him. He has a pure conscience, having delivered the whole counsel of God. Contentment, hard work, concern for the weak, generosity from the heart. You see, church, character matters. It does matter. Your, your course that you're running matters. Some of you right now are running a course that's not the course God set for you. And you sit here this morning and you know it to be true. This course is a course that's intended not only to be finished, but it's to be run well with joy. That's not just true of an elder. Notice the final thing that Paul models for this group. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. He prayed with them. He prayed with them. He commended them to the Lord's care. He's leaving now for Jerusalem, but he's praying the Lord to guard them and to guide them in their leadership role in Ephesus. The elders were sad to see Paul leave. The Bible says that they sorrowed that they would see his face no longer. And they even went so far as to accompany him to the ship. You know what I see in these final three verses? 36, 37, 38. It's a picture of a relationship. Paul had invested 
three years of his life in these men. The elders alongside Paul had invested a great deal of prayer and ministry among the church at Ephesus. God had been at work. Great emotion is is put on display here in these final three verses. These men honestly loved being together. They enjoyed one another's company. They grew to love the Lord together as one. These men were godly shepherds. You know, when you fast forward to the end of Paul's life, you see that his course is quickly coming to a close. I want you to listen to how he testifies to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 7 and 8. He says, I have fought the fight. I have finished the what? The course. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And listen, finally, you almost get, you know, Paul's in prison, 2 Timothy. He says, finally. All this that I've been going through, this this course that was set for me, and he says, finally. Finally what? Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And listen, he says, not to me only, but to, also to all who have loved his appearing. To all who have loved his appearing. The body of Christ has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The body of Christ has been blessed with spiritual gifts. The body of Christ has been given the truth of God's word. The body of Christ has been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And the body of Christ has Christ as the head. You know, the body of Christ has been given elders to shepherd the flock. And shepherds are stewards of God and caretakers of the soul. Shepherds have a love for God and an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to have that. They must have that. Shepherds hold fast this word of truth and they minister to the body in prayer. They are among the people and they genuinely love the people that they shepherd. They realize that encouragement, exhortation, warning, rebuke, rejoicing, many kinds of ministry may be needed, but the goal is to present every man, every woman mature in Christ Jesus. And it's to this end that we labor. Peter says it this way in chapter 5 of his first epistle. Verses 2, 3, and 4. He says, and remember, remember, before I read what he says... Peter is the one who in John chapter 21 is standing before Jesus. And Jesus asks the question, do you love me? Do you love me? And you remember Jesus' response to Peter's words? Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. 1 Peter chapter 5, 2, 3, and 4. Peter, this Peter says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. See, Paul is heading on to Jerusalem where he's going to face chains and tribulations. The Ephesian elders are going to be heading back home to shepherd the flock entrusted to their care. And in the days ahead, they are going to encounter some of their own wolves from the outside and trials from within. The church at Hope in Christ has experienced their own share of trials over the nearly seven years now. to be seven years December. Many people in that time frame have come. Many have gone. But the head of this church is still Christ. Still Christ. He's not going anywhere. Christ is the chief cornerstone upon which the church is built. And I point you back to the first character testimony given by Paul in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility. What if the body of Christ here were to steward our days serving the Lord with all 
humility? What if each one saw himself as a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ? And what if each part walked together in the faith, made it a point to strive together for the faith of the gospel? What if we were about something bigger than ourselves? Oh, boy. I'll tell you, yesterday I had an opportunity. I was coaching the boys. They had a game. And after one of the games, I had, I had t- 10 young men. We're standing in a circle, and I'm talking to them. And I'm letting them know of something that I saw. It was character stuff. There was character. It wasn't everybody, but there was a couple. I wanted to address the group because I just wanted to get rid of it. wanted to get it out there. And I said, hey, there are 10 of you. I can only play five of you at a time. And I said, some of you here need to understand and think team rather than individual. We won the game today, boys. You ought to be happy because our team won. And some of you, sad to say, some of you deep down inside are more angry and upset because you didn't get to play as much as you wanted to play. I want you to understand something. This is not about you. This is about the team. You see, referees referee and coaches coach and players are intended to play. So when you're on the floor, you play as hard as you can. You do the best that you can for the length of time that you're on the floor. And when you're on the bench, you do the best that you can while you're on the bench. And you be a team player while you're on the bench. Church. Do your best to present yourself to God. There are no bench players in the faith. Everyone is a participant, praise God. Everyone is not only eligible, but everyone, listen, listen, everyone is expected to contribute to the body of Christ. The church is more than elders. Elders are not given to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints. Are you equipable? Are you ready to work hard for the Lord's sake? Are you going to stay the course for the Lord's sake? Are you ready to strive together, to walk in unity, to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith? Are you looking forward, as Paul was, to that crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to those who fight the good fight, who finish the course and keep the faith? This text, church, has been an encouragement in my own soul, a text about elders. Oh, I like it. A text about elders. They don't, we don't come across them all that often in here. Well, by golly, when we land on one, it's exciting. This has been an encouragement to be able to read this text. God has entrusted his overseers with a stewardship, and the stewardship is his flock, and the souls of his flock matter. Each one of you matter to God. Listen. God loved you through his son Jesus with a cross. Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. That you might have life. I'd ask as we conclude, I'd ask that you pray. We we need prayer. Ralph and I do. We need prayer. Pray for us as we shepherd the flock. Will you do that? Pray for us that we would look to the chief shepherd first that we might know how to shepherd this flock. And pray for one another, that we would stir one another up to good deeds and love and exhort one another daily as the day is approaching. As David, that shepherd king, wrote in Psalm 23, it's my hope and It's a question. Can can you praise him today? Can you praise God today as David did and say that the Lord is my shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Can you say that this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths that you've given to us in your word. We thank you that you feed your flock. 
that you've blessed us in so many ways. You've given us a family. You've given us a place to live. You've given us clothes to wear. You've given us food to eat, a church family to belong to. You've given us your only son. He died as our substitute on the cross. He atoned completely and sufficiently for all our sins. And he stands now interceding on our behalf before you, Father, awaiting his return. And Lord, as I think about that, I just, as the end of Revelation, it's come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, look forward to you coming. But until then, May our hearts go on singing and rejoicing and worshiping you alone. Thanks for being our shepherd. You exercise your rod when needed and you gently use your staff to guide us along the way. Father, we're grateful that you always know what's best for us. So Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, shepherd us that we might be conformed evermore into the image of your son, the good shepherd. It's in his name we pray. Amen.